We're in a series about the kingdom of God and how it really was the core message of Jesus. And he invited his people, his followers, all people, to live in the presence and power of God right now as God's will was done on earth as it is in heaven. We've been looking at some amazing stories that Jesus told in order to help people understand the true kingdom of God. Today we're going to read one from the book of Luke, chapter 16. I'm going to encourage you to really listen to this one now and follow it on the screen because I'll tell you, it is a doozy. Then Jesus said to his disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager. And charges were brought to him that this man was squandering his property. So he summoned him and said to him, what is this I hear about you? Give me an accounting of your management because you cannot be my manager any longer. Then the manager said to himself, what will I do now that my master is taking his position, this position away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do so that when I am dismissed as manager, people may welcome me into their homes. Now listen to what he does. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he asked the first, how much do you owe my master? He answered, a hundred jugs of olive oil. He said to him, take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it 50. Then he asked another, how much do you owe? And he replied, a hundred containers of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and make it 80. Listen to this now. His master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the children of this age are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than are the children of light. I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of worldly wealth, so that when it is gone, they may welcome you into the eternal homes. Now we're going to stop there. This story is almost universally acknowledged to be one of the most difficult of all Jesus' parables to understand. It's a story of a man, a manager, fired for gross incompetence, if not actual embezzlement. And he responds by going behind the boss's back, hiding the fact that he's been fired, finessing the books, illegally reducing the money that is owed to his employer to feather his own nest, and then he gets commended at the end. Now, how in the world are we supposed to understand this? Well, the good news is there's a very simple explanation. It's so simple that I'm going to ask one of our new elders, uh, Wayne Howard. Wayne, where are you at? I know you're here. Is he out? Oh, he's not going to be able to come up and explain it. Okay. Shoot. I'm disappointed. Okay. Could you let him know that I was going to ask him to explain this because it's so easy? Okay. It is actually one of the most difficult stories in the world. We're going to go back over the story, and we're going to try to unpack it. Word gets back, as the story unfolds, to the owner of this kind of agribusiness. He's kind of a landlord. Think of him that way. And his key manager is squandering money. So here's what he says to the guy. He literally says, what is it that I'm hearing about you? The implication is that there's this steady stream of information, and it's not very good. And as Jesus, this master storyteller, tells the story, the manager has to wonder, I wonder how much my boss actually knows. And he doesn't want to give away too much information, so he doesn't say anything. He doesn't even respond to the question. It's kind of like when your kids are playing somewhere and you hear this shattering, like expensive-sounding breakage. 
And you say, hey, kids, what's going on in there? What's the number one answer that they always give? Nothing. nothing. Of course nothing's going on. They're just being kind of uh, street savvy, kind of street smart. Well, this is the way the manager is. He doesn't answer the question because he's not a stupid guy. He's thinking, maybe I can bluff my way out of this. But then the ax falls. Then the landlord, the owner, says, you cannot be my manager any longer. You're fired. And he says, also, I want you to give me an accounting of your management. In other words, there's going to be an audit. Surrender the books. Now, it's at this point that the manager is in deep weeds, and he realizes it. And he realizes if he doesn't do something quickly, he is toast. So here's the question that he asks. It's very interesting. What will I do now that the master is taking the position away? I want you to notice that he does not delude himself into thinking that things are going to work out. He does not waste time making excuses to his master, which Jesus' listeners probably would expect him to do. This guy is committed to reality. And the reality is, is that he has lost his job. He has been fired. So the first thing he does is he does like most of us. He considers employment opportunities. Maybe he picked up the one ads, called a couple of headhunters and said, hey, I need a job. But he figures out, listen, when word gets around, I'm never going to get another job after finding out what I did here. He knows he's not going to get a good reference from his boss. So he thinks about the options. He says, what else could I do? I could dig, but I'm really not into the physical labor stuff. I could beg, but I really don't grovel too well. So he keeps thinking, and then this phrase that is so wonderful in this story, Jesus tells the story, and he says at one point, he says, I know what I'll do. He figures it out. Now, as a great storyteller, Jesus doesn't tell us at this point what the guy's going to do. The guy just says, I know what I can do. And we have to kind of follow the story along to figure it out. And here's the key to the story, friends. The key to the story is, is that nobody else knows yet that he's been fired. Everybody except the master thinks he still has his old job. This guy has a very narrow window of opportunity, so he formulates a plan. He calls in his master's debtors, and he writes off a large portion of their debt. And they're so impressed and they're so grateful with what he's done that he's figured out that maybe they'll hire him once he loses his job. He says, they'll welcome me into their homes. They'll allow me to be their manager. Listen, he no sooner thinks of the plan than he executes it. Now, here's how it unfolds. He's very shrewd about this. In verse 5, Jesus says that he summons the master's debtors one by one. Now, why does he call them in one by one? Well, he's not stupid. He doesn't want them talking to each other. This is a high-stakes game. One wrong question, one employee walking in at the wrong time, and he gets discovered. His cover's blown. So he addresses his people very quickly, and he calls them in one by one. He doesn't even call them sir or friend. He just says to them, how much do you owe my master? Each of them says that they'll pay the amount, and he reduces the amount for each one. One olive oil and one uh, wheat, etc., Sit down quickly. Now, why does he want him to do it quickly? Because he doesn't want the master to know what he's doing. And with a few strokes of the pen, he saves these people thousands of dollars. First, the guy with the, the, the jug of oil. Second, with the wheat. 
And he goes on through the list, and it's amazing. Listen now, listen. It works. <laughs> the master finds out about it, and Jesus says that the master commends this guy because he acted shrewdly. Now, what in the world is going on here? Is Jesus advocating dishonest business practices? And the answer to that question is, of course not. Jesus, several times in his parables, would tell stories, sometimes with very shady characters in those stories. And he's using a technique here that is kind of a storytelling technique called from the light to the heavy. And usually this phrase, when you go from the light to the heavy, involves a phrase called how much more. Now, I'm going to give you an example of this. Uh, maybe we'll even look at this parable later on uh, in the series. Jesus tells the story, remember, of the widow who persists with a corrupt and stingy judge. And she keeps coming back to him over and over. And finally, this judge uh, gets so fed up with her coming back that he finally gives in and gives her what she needs. And the point of the story is not that God is stingy. It's not that God is the stingy judge. The point is, is that if a widow can persist with a stingy, unjust, corrupt judge, how much more should we persist with God, who is a merciful, loving God who longs to give good gifts to his kids? See, he's going from a light example, almost a funny, comical example, to this substantial reality of life, this heavy. That's what he's doing here with the manager. This manager had what is called a dedication to reality. And the parable as a whole, at least one interpretation of it, is that we need to face reality in our lives, friends. When crises or problems or opportunities come, we need to face it. Let's look at what this guy did. There's a crisis in his life, and he has four key responses very quickly. The manager is in crisis. Instead of denying the crisis... He looks it square in the face and he says, my master's taking my position away from me. And the first thing is, I have a problem. My problem is, I'm going to lose my job. But instead of paralyzing this guy, he doesn't give up. He doesn't wait for somebody to come along. He does the second thing. He says, what am I going to do? In other words, I will take responsibility for my problem." Now notice, he doesn't have this vague dreaming kind of personality. This guy does something important, and that's step number three, and that is, I will form a realistic plan. Listen, this guy had the discernment of a Supreme Court justice and the nerves of a cat burglar. He says to himself, I will form a plan, and then he does the last thing. Instead of procrastinating, he says, I need to put the plan into action. I will take the action step. So he has a problem. He says, it's not somebody else's problem. It's my problem. I'll take responsibility. In order to take responsibility, I've got to form a plan, and then I'm going to take action on the plan. Now, why did Jesus commend this guy's honesty to face reality? I think the reason he did it, friends, is because he knows how often we don't tend to do it. Jesus knows all about our propensity to deny reality instead of facing it, to wait for a bailout instead of owning up to responsibility. We kind of create sometimes these vague mystical dreams 
rather than concrete plans. And we procrastinate rather than saying, you know what, it's time to take action. Here's what Jesus wants us to know is that problems do not go away. Jesus is saying they have to be faced. And the question is, who's going to face reality and who's going to collapse into action? This is one of those parables that goes from the light to the heavy. And the deal is this. Jesus is saying if this story, if in this story, this guy who is shrewd and creative and bold, listen, even though he, he was dealing with material gain, you got to understand that's all that was at stake here was a guy's job, his livelihood, his money. I mean, this guy didn't even have an honest character. But if this guy with material gain and a dishonest character can be shrewd and creative and bold, how much more should we as children of light, as followers of Jesus, who have the help of Almighty God available to us, how much more should we face reality with courage and determination? Jesus said, it's just amazing. My kids don't seem to face reality about some things. Jesus makes it through the story. He's kind of wrapping it up. The master commends the dishonest manager because he's very shrewd. Now look at this statement on the screen because it's a very, very powerful statement. One of the most powerful in the Gospels, in my opinion. He says, for the children of this age are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than are the children of light. People of this generation, people who are not even my followers, people who are not even in the kingdom yet, are more shrewd and creative and bold. He's talking to us, friends. He's talking to those inside the kingdom. He's saying people outside the church many times have a greater willingness to face reality head on. Now, the audience here is always important when you're reading a parable. And Luke tells this story, and he says specifically, they tells it to the disciples. He wasn't just giving this to the crowds. Now, we learn later that the Pharisees are listening in on this, but the intended audience here is the disciples. And what Jesus is saying to us, and I think is still saying to us, is, listen, I want some street smarts from you. I want some savviness. He uses the same exact word in verse 8 in Matthew's gospel. He sends his disciples. Remember this story? And he commends them, and he says to them, he says, I want you to be as innocent as doves, but I also want you to be as wise as serpents. Now, see, serpents were known as crafty animals. And there were in Jesus' day two primary words for wisdom. There was the word Sophia, which uh, kind of is like a spiritual pious ring to it. But then there was another word for nomos, and that meant savvy or shrewd, like someone who had street smarts. This is the word that Jesus is using in Matthew 10. He says, I want you to be wise as serpents, harmless, innocent as doves. I want you to have some street smarts. Now you think about it, this is exactly the way Jesus lived. You know, you often see pictures of Jesus, these interpretations of Jesus, looking like innocent as a dove, like he's some kind of vague dreamer, a little high on something or something, you know? How often do you see a picture of Jesus, an interpretation, a depiction of him, as shrewd as a serpent? Like he really knows what's going on. See, here's what we do. We confuse spiritual with being naive or gullible or timid. Let me tell you something about Jesus. He wasn't any of those things, friends. 
Jesus had this kind of disturbing, earthy streak to him. And the reason I think that, because people have a tendency to distort spirituality. Let me tell you something, there's nothing naive about Jesus. He was utterly realistic without a trace of cynicism, and he was utterly innocent without a trace of naivety. That's what's so remarkable about him. There had never been that combination before. He was shrewd as a serpent, innocent as a dove, and he says, I want my followers to be the same way. Now, why can't we do this? I think it's very interesting. The people that are in the community that we call the church, sometimes, and I'm guilty of this myself, even though there's not a technical term for it, there's a word that gets thrown around a lot, and I'm going to use that word this morning. We have a tendency to engage in what we want to call spiritualizing. Now, I'm going to give you my definition of it. Somebody else may give a different definition. This is just what I think it is. Spiritualizing is when we have the tendency to seek to avoid reality and deny problems by covering them over with language that sounds spiritual but in fact is nonsense or unrealistic. You might want to hang on for the last part of the passage, okay? It's using language and glossing over things by making them sound spiritual but when you get right down to it, it's avoiding reality. Now, I want to tell you, I've been guilty of it. We all probably have. So what I'd like to do in the last moments of this message is I just want to walk through a few areas of life, give some examples of spiritualizing, because Jesus is saying, listen, that's not what I want my followers to do. He wants us to be as innocent as doves, wise as serpents. And what I'd like you to do is as we walk through about four of these categories, I'd like you to just kind of do a self-assessment. Just kind of be honest and say, is Jesus talking to me today through these four areas? Here's the first area. One area that we tend to kind of spiritualize and we kind of don't face reality would be in the area of character issues. For example, let's say there's somebody in the church who has a real negative personality, like negative spirit. Constantly complaining. They see themselves as a chronic victim. Other people see them coming and they literally run the other way. And if this is you, you just keep finding that relationships are hard to come by. People keep keeping you at arm's length. Now let me tell you what the spiritualizing part of you does. If this is you, you tend to avoid taking responsibility by saying things like, you know, people should love everybody. But they keep rejecting me. Like, what's wrong with them? Don't they have a problem? And it becomes kind of this game to avoid facing up to the hard truth, which is I'm a very negative, bitter, chronic, complaining person. If you want to be guaranteed to push people away, friends, just be critical and complain all the time. Can I tell you that, honestly, a variety of issues that people face in their life really stems from this issue, from character issues. Whether it's their habitually negative, or maybe it's somebody who gossips, gossips or maybe it's somebody who lives in constant anxiety, or people, you know, they're not regarding of other people's feelings. So this morning what I want to say to you is rather than gloss over it, maybe the question should be, you know, I have a problem, what step do I need to take to resolve this? One of the things you could do is get in a life group where other people can kind of see things in you and say, hey, 
you're kind of being a complainer. You're kind of negative. Maybe it's getting uh, really deeply rooted in the Word and say, you know, I need to get the Word in me so that it can remind me that I don't have to live with this negative, bitter spirit. Maybe you need to see a counselor even to the point that you need to sit down with them privately on an ongoing basis so they can talk to you about this issue and where it comes from and why it's there. And here's the point I want you to know. All the spiritual talk and all the finger pointing in the world, friends, isn't going to do you any good if you keep pushing people away. So here's the question for the day. Will you take responsibility? Will you say, you know what? I'll make a plan. And will you take action on that plan? That's the first issue. Second issue that we tend to spiritualize, we'll just call them relational issues. People gloss over or they don't live in the real world about relationships. Now, I'm going to give you a classic example, and do not raise your hand on this, okay? I'm sure you've heard it. Somebody's in a terrible relationship, and they'll say these words. They'll say, well, the Lord is just not leading me out of this relationship. Now, here's reality. Reality is I know he's ill-behaved. He's afraid to commit. He's not even really a Christ follower. But if he breaks up with me, I'm going to curl up in a ball and die. But they don't say it that way because if they say it that way, it doesn't sound spiritual. So instead, they just say, the Lord's not leading me out of this relationship yet. I love the story Garrison Keeler writes about a pastor, Pastor Ingvist in Lake Wobegon. And he gets frustrated because people keep recommending that they go see pastors when they want to do foolish, stupid things. And this is what he writes. He says, Pastor Ingvist glanced at dear Abby now and then, and it alarmed him how often she recommended ministers. Talk to your minister, she'd say to the 14-year-old girl in love with the 51-year-old auto mechanic married who's in prison for armed robbery. Why did dear Abby assume a minister could deal with this? The poor old preacher is in his study, paging through Leviticus, when the door flies open and a teenage girl in a tank top burst in weeping with passion for an older married felon three times her age. What is the good reverend to do? Try to interest her in two weeks of handicrafts at Cape Tonawanda? <laughs> Things were very clear to him a moment before, and now as she pours out her love for Vince... Her belief in his innocence, the fact that his wife never loved him, never really loved him like she, Trish, could love him, and the fact that despite his age and their never even having met in person, there is something indescribably sacred and precious between them. All the pastor can think of is, thou shalt not be ridiculous. <laughs> you understand what I'm saying? The Apostle Paul says it, see then that you walk circumspectly. Not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Now think about Trish, who's in love with a felon by mail. When Paul wrote these wonderful words, he was probably sitting in an upper room in Athens. It was probably late at night. All the foolish people were asleep. <laughs> and he was there, and nobody could speak up and say, Huh? What do you mean, Paul? I mean, you mean I shouldn't go for the long, you know, distance walking backwards record? I mean, but I know I can do it. I'm good at it. I walk backwards for miles. See, we just spiritualize stuff that doesn't need to be spiritualized. And relational foolishness is one of those things. 
Here's what I want to say. Some of you are in a dating relationship. You've been glossing over it and spiritualizing it. And the truth is, because of fear or loneliness, please accept this with love. You just do not have the courage to cut it off. And despite clear and consistent advice from a multitude of people in your life, you're bound and determined to make your whole relational life into this mystical, super-spiritual affair. Listen, I've seen this, friends. People will say, it had to be God. I mean, we were walking down the street. The same exact time, we decided to eat lunch at the same exact cafe. As we turned into the door, we bumped into each other, and his watch fell off, and it broke the crystal in the watch. And my name is Crystal. And his name is Carl with a K. And that's my favorite TV character show's name, Carl with a K. And then we both ordered the club sandwich with mayo. My mother's maiden name is Mayo. It's got to be God. Listen, I'm being facetious. I understand. I'm being a little out there. But I'll just say this in love. Sometimes people live in bizarro world. When it comes to relationships, friends. And I say that in love. So what you have to do is you have to step up and you have to look in the mirror and you have to say, okay, I have a problem. I need to face reality. Now when you do it, there's going to be this freedom that comes with it like you've never experienced in your life. Sometimes you just have to say, I got a conflict in this relationship. I need to call them up, sit down with them face to face. And we need to have a conversation, a difficult one, but a conversation. Some of you are parents, and you have a child, and that child needs to be confronted about an ongoing issue in their life, and there's a pattern going on, and you know that you're the one to do it. So this morning, I ask you, will you be honest? Will you be as innocent as a dove, but wise as a serpent? Third area. Oh, my goodness. Has to do with vocational issues, problems at work, or with employment. I cannot tell you how many times people spiritualize this stuff. I've heard it so many times. Somebody wants a very new job. They need a new job. So they make a comment like this. You know what? I'm not going to do anything to seek a new job. I'm not going to take any initiative. I'm not going to pursue any conversations, no contacts. Won't do a new resume. Won't make any applications. I won't do anything. And that way, if I get the job, I'll know it was God that was doing it. I've had that conversation. See, we get confused about this, friends. The assumption is, is that if we're passive, that that's some kind of technique to guarantee that I will get God's will for my life. That passivity is a guarantee for God's will. Listen, it's kind of like saying, I'm not going to buy any groceries or fix any food or go to any restaurants or order any meals. And that way, listen, if food makes it into my body, then I'll know it was God and not me operating in the flesh. I tell you what, you give that one a shot. In about two days, you're going to find that your body's going to tell you you're incredibly hungry every time you drive by Chick-fil-A. Right? We live sometimes in this, this other world. Spiritualizing oftentimes takes the form of evading hard work or acquiring wisdom or preparation. Now, I'm going to say this. Generally speaking, God's will for human beings is not passivity. And I say generally because there are exceptions to that rule. Generally speaking, his desire is that we take initiative 
and we exercise good judgment, and we accept responsibility, and we make the best decision that we can, and then if we don't do well, if it doesn't go well, we learn from those consequences. So I ask you today about your job. Have you been thinking changing jobs? Maybe you've been disappointed and kind of going through a difficult time at your job. Maybe it's your attitude. Maybe it's the attitude of somebody you work with. Maybe it's workaholism. You're away from home way too many hours. Maybe you're in the wrong job and you're not fulfilled. This morning, will you come to grips with reality? Will you say to yourself, listen, I'm going to be in the right job, in the right situation for the right conditions, but I'm not just going to wait until it falls into my lap. I'm going to try to form a plan. I'm going to try to seek some guidance, get some counsel, and then I'm going to take some action. Last one. This is going to sound a little contradictory, but please hear me out. There are also people in the Christian community who tend to spiritualize faith issues. Now you ask, how could you do that? Well, believe it or not, it isn't that hard. I have found this to be true, especially of young Christians and people who have a real misunderstanding of what spirituality looks like. I'll explain it this way. Many years ago, long before Oasis existed, I served in a church, and there was a particular lady in that church that was very, very popular and well-known. And they kind of call her like the walking Bible. I tell you, this woman knew more scriptures and could quote them verbatim, line by line, than almost anyone I'd ever met. The only problem with it was that she was real good on the quoting side, but she wasn't too good on the application side. And she had kind of this chronic kind of finger-pointing spirit about other people, even the pastors in the church. Now, to most people who didn't know better, her knowledge and outward appearance led them to believe that she was a really spiritual person. But the truth is, when you, when you peeled back that veneer, she really, down deep, was a very angry, jealous, bitter, and manipulative person. And here's what I'm trying to help you understand is that you can know the Bible, you can pray all the time, you can serve more than anybody else in the kingdom, but if it is not done with a heart that is truly connected to God, all you have is a person who knows a lot about the Bible and prays a lot and does a lot of things at church. We have to be very careful, friends, that we don't confuse being spiritual with being Christ-like. You know how it works. We tell people we've been praying for them. Truth is, we didn't even think about them. We sign up to volunteer to serve just so we hope that somebody notices. We give something to somebody and we say things like, you know, God just laid this on my heart to give it to you. When the truth is, you know you're going to be asking something of them in the near future. Friends, Christianity, being a follower of our Jesus, has never been and never will be a contest to prove who knows the most, prays the longest, serves the hardest, lives the best. So today I just want to tell you, if you're on that spiritual treadmill, here's some good news. You can jump off. None of us, none of us, none of us in this room are good enough. None of us have done enough to merit God's love and forgiveness and grace. None of us are going to be spiritual enough by ourselves. Yet God still invites us into the kingdom. This morning I just ask you to be real about this issue. Be honest about this issue. Do a reality check about this issue. 
Now, if this sermon kind of day to, feels kind of heavy to you, I realize it is. So I want to end on a high note. Okay? I want to end on an up note. I want to offer one more aspect, and we'll kind of close with this today. This would have been quite apparent to Jesus' listeners, the people who were hearing him tell this story. I hope you'll understand it and listen carefully to it as well. A wonderful writer who writes about the Proverbs by the name of Ken Bailey writes about the nuance in this particular story. He says, all the debtors in the story received some wonderful news. Their huge debts had been enormously reduced. And more than likely, because of the way society worked for them back then, is they would have held a party uh, in the village that evening, in the town. They would be celebrating their good fortune that their debts had been forgiven. And Bailey writes about this, and he says, but listen carefully, because between verses 7 and 8, something interesting happens. The owner finds out what the manager has done. He's fired the manager, but the manager has already negotiated the lower prices. So now, and this is important, the owner has two options. One option is he could call all those debtors in and tell them, sorry, friends, that was a mistake. I had already fired the manager, and the debts are not going to be reduced at all. And you owe everything that you owed before, and the party's over, and you can go home. Or, and this is beautiful... The owner could see the joy that was at work. And he could decide to just let it ride. The owner could be amazingly generous and pay the price himself. The master, <laughs> who's of course a clever guy, an in-touch guy, reflects on these options. And he says, you know what? <laughs> I'm going to commend the manager instead of reclaiming the debt. See, here's what's going on in the story. The manager, the guy who had been fired, he knew the owner's character. He knew that he was dealing with a generous and gracious man, and he bet everything on the character of the owner. And the owner did the generous thing. Now listen, he doesn't say, okay, I'm going to bring you back as my manager. <laughs> Jesus is very careful not to commend disobedience or dishonesty. See, this isn't about abusing grace and mercy. This is another light to heavy moment and much more, how much more moment. Jesus is saying if the dishonest manager had the courage to face his problem and he relied on the character and the generosity and the mercy of the master, how much more can you, my follower, my children, face anything in your life, any reality, confronted with anything, confident that the graciousness and the mercy of God can be trusted? And what I want to tell you today is if you're having to face some reality, that is good news for you. It is good news that you can move forward. And even if you miss the mark, even if you mess up, the owner will still be gracious and merciful. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you will teach us today from your word, specifically this parable about reality in the kingdom. And uh, we're all guilty of it, God. We all spiritualize things at times out of convenience or out of... Um, fear, uh, out of um, being found out, uh, just out of laziness we do it. 
But today is not that day. Today is the day when we see it clearly and we hear Jesus' words to us. That if the children of this age can act shrewdly and if they can deal with things boldly and in creative ways, how much more can the children of light who have this great, good God who will help them and love them and pick them up even when they fall. How much more can we do that? Will you help us in these last few moments, God, to get very specific about the issue in our life that we need to stop spiritualizing and we need to take responsibility. Help us do that in these last few moments. Amen.